Look in first, Second Corinthians 10 with me for just a moment. Second Corinthians 10. We're reading through Second Corinthians in our staff meeting Thursdays. And uh, Justin had asked me to read this passage this past Thursday. And I thought that <clears throat> as I read it, how um, appropriate it is for what we will do tonight and next Sunday night. Second Corinthians, Paul is... Uh, He's writing to this church, which, uh, oh my, they needed a lot of convalescence. They, they were, uh, they could be a very disorderly group of believers. And they are in need in this letter of getting some, uh, really some correction. And Paul had hounds, the hounds of false teaching, um, who were working their way in among the Corinthian believers. And these, um, these teachers, 2 Corinthians 10, these false teachers were uh, spreading some really, some pretty vicious bad stuff about Paul. Well, he's setting the record straight, and we're going to just drop right into a line of thought he has here where he's, he's defending his apostleship. And you get the impression as Paul does this through 10 and 11 of 2 Corinthians that he doesn't seem to be really comfortable in having to, uh, as we might say, toot his own horn. He, this is in that place where he says, I speak as a fool. That is, all right, I've got a, here's my resume. And he defends his apostleship, and even he goes on to defend his humility. But look how he does it this, in this place. I'm going to pick up at verse, I'm going to drop right in on three. First, Second Corinthians 10, 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and, uh, excuse me, all right, there it comes. And every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. What he's saying is that, listen, there are, there are ways of thinking that are just absolutely hostile to the Christian faith. They're part of the dark side. They're in the darkness, the kingdom of darkness. And Paul is saying there's a way to handle this, these fortresses, these thoughts that have to be taken captive. I know this verse, these verses have been kind of misused in the last, I know for sure in the last 20 years, people have about footholds and Satan or demons being able to get a place in the life of the Christian. This is not that, though indirectly it is in that Satan can get, Wrong lines of thought, bad ways of thinking. And he can get that working in um, the heads of God's people. Paul said, here's how you handle that. We're going to submit it to divine truth. And that is our weapon. I want to do that tonight and next Sunday night in a modest way. I want to... Uh, 
bring to you this uh, titled message, study, The Universe, with Christmas or without Christmas. Does it matter? By the way, does everybody have the handout for tonight? Okay. Thank you, Susanna, for doing it this way. This makes it easy for us to do it uh, because we're going to be on this for two weeks. We won't, we'll not finish this outline tonight, so be sure and hang on to it. Let's, uh, let's consider something by way of a little introduction, background. I want us to look at the matter of what a worldview is, but before I say that, I have lived long enough, and uh, many of you are with me on this, to notice the alarming decline in clarity of moral thought and the, the rapid spread of anti-Christian values. Christianity long ago was dismissed from the right hand, the favored right hand in our culture. Dismissed. And this makes it necessary to revisit the subject of world view. All right, what's a world view? Let's consider it. A world view is the following. It is a set of presuppositions. These are assumptions which may be true, partially true, or entirely false. Every, because everybody has a worldview. Which we hold consciously. I'm, this is a quote from James Sire in his book, The Universe Next Door. I'll say more about that in a moment. I, I would rather use the word um, somehow to say consciously or uh, I want to get a, a noun uh, for being unaware, the unaware of the fact that one holds this, but consistently or inconsistently about the basic makeup of the world. Just think of the vocabulary issues that present themselves to us today. This is just a little sampling I'm going to run some words by you. Liberal, conservative, leftism, libertarianism, intolerance, political correctness, right wing, left wing, extremists, moderates, evil, good, fundamentalism, sin. These words of you can see many, if not most, of these words. You can see them in the daily discussions, in the news, and they present some issues. Everybody has a worldview, a way of, of uh, interpreting reality. What I've chosen to do is to take only one worldview. I'm not going to walk us through all the worldviews that we would find in our culture. I recommend a book to you, this book, The Universe Next Door, by James Sire. For those of you who are here in 1985, we did this, a study on worldviews. And we did a little study in a Sunday school class. A basic worldview catalog, this third edition that I have put out in 19, came out in 1999, I believe it is. Excellent book. And I've chosen to take the outline here and to give me the talking points that we need to go through this because it's, 
is such a uh, has such clarity and so helpful. So that's that's what we're doing. And what we will do is take what Sire puts up front as the the worldview that we here tonight we would all sign on to, namely Christian theism. Christian theism was actually the worldview up until about 300 years ago. Uh, if you would have taught, I don't even know that the word worldview, I'm, I'm just thinking of a little congregation somewhere 300 years ago, England, <laughs> Scotland, would you even thought about doing a study on worldviews? Worldviews? There's only one. It's theism. Obviously, that's changed. And it is, and especially in our culture, it's changed. Here's my objective. I have a twofold objective that I want to pursue. First of all, they're, they're both questions. Why do you think the way you do about, and you fill in the blank, in anything? Why do you, why do you think the way you do about death, sickness, war, um, race relations, economics, the end of the world, um, climate, <laughs> uh, go on and on. Secondly, why do others think the way they do about these things? That there's quite of uh, a list of worldviews. I say quite of here. I I can run these by you. That the way uh, uh, Sire pursues them in this book. Of course, Christian theism is the first, and that's what we're going to we're going to camp out on that one for the next two weeks. I'm going to try to keep it just within that confine, in the confines of theism. But there are others. Deism, naturalism. I'm going to, I'm going to give a little side glance to that one a few times on nat- naturalism. Because that one has made deep, deep inroads into our culture. Nihilism. Existentialism, Eastern pantheistic monism, the New Age, postmodernism. Now that might, your reaction could be at this point, wow, these things are out there. They are, but, and you've heard them, you've seen them, you've, ex, you've been exposed to them, but not in these more technical terms, but they're all they're all over the place, in the school systems and in in the uh, political realm and uh, and the news and television and movies. They're everywhere. Now, with that said, I'm going to I, I have eight of these that eight lines or or statements that summarize Christian theism. Let's jump right into the word. We're just going to take the first four tonight. The first of these would be that God is infinite and personal, a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, transcendent, he is above his creation, and imminent, he's also 
in it. He's above it, apart from it, and in it. That's the idea of transcendent and imminent. Omniscient, he knows everything. Not a thing God doesn't know. Sovereign and good. I want to walk through, this is not a study on the attributes of God, though I do confess I was pulled my notes out on the excellencies of God, which we've done a number of times here through the years, and I looked at that, and I just salivated. I said, oh, my, we need to revisit this. Oh, it's so huge. And it just touches on absolutely everything. We'll just take a few, a sampling of the list of the characteristics of the attributes of God. But I thought I would put up here at first just to juxtapose Christian theism with what naturalism says with regard to ultimate realities. Naturalism says matter exists eternally and is all there is. God does not exist. So in some form, all the matter of the universe has always been. This is written large through uh, the field of science, which has kind of knocked Christians somewhat off balance. And if you are a careful observer, you will notice that liberalism, and when I say liberalism, I'm referring to political liberalism, but it also has an identical twin, namely theological liberalism, they more often than not, are um, companions. That among other terms, uh, derogatory terms, uh, pejorative terms, when it comes to referring to Christian um, or conservatives, even fundamentalists, is that uh, the term that is used to describe us is that we're anti-science. Anti-science, among you're not only sexist, homophobic, or xenophobic, um, but now anti-science. Matter, according to naturalism, produced the mind. All right, I'm just going to sit that there on the table and let it sit, and I may veer back into it again. But I want us to go back and just think, here is Christian theism. This is what we believe. We believe. That God is infinite. Well, there it is. Excuse me. I got ahead of myself again. Um, You have that. All right. That God, well, wait a minute. Do you have God is infinite? God is personal? No. Okay. You don't have that. All right. Just listen and take your note. You've got to squeeze this in between one and two. All right. I want to talk about these a bit. What does it mean that God is infinite? It means that he is beyond scope. Um, He is beyond any measurement as far as man is concerned. Man cannot do any kind of measurement on how long has God existed, how long will he exist. He cannot impose that kind of thinking upon God, and that he is self-existent. He doesn't depend upon anything outside of himself for his life. And God has no 
twin. He's always existed, always will exist. God is personal. That means he's knowable. He is like us. Uh, he is self-reflective and self-determinative. He, well, he reflects upon himself. He knows himself thoroughly. God doesn't discover any new thing about himself like we might <laughs> think. I didn't know I was this way. God would never, never, has never had the experience, wow, I really do have a lot of power. That God has self-reflection, but it's absolutely, completely, eternally informed by himself with immediacy of knowledge and self-determined. We can know him as a father. He thinks and he acts. Our father who art in heaven. So he's personal. God is transcendent. That he's beyond us in our world. He's otherly. He is also imminent. He is with us. We can speak of God as being among us. Even God in Christ indwelling us. Yet God is wholly other and outside of his creation. So he is transcendent. He is omniscient. God, he <clears throat> he knows. He knows everything. He is he who knows. <laughs> we will put it that way. He is sovereign. He's sovereign in that there's nothing beyond his ultimate interest, control, and authority. Nothing happens by chance. God doesn't miss anything. As some have put it, that there, there is not one stray molecule. If there is any stray molecule, then God isn't God. God is good. Um, here, his holiness. He's, holiness means to be separate. He's holy other. He's not like we are. He is separate in his being and he's separate in his moral purity. We usually think of holiness just immediately moral purity. But God is not like we are. Because of this, by the way, because there's here's this absolute standard of righteousness, he's holy and he's love, there is hope for us. So God is not a God. He's not playing a game with us. We're not like a video game where God's got this remote, you know, with these uh, incredibly omnipotent thumbs. And just working it around whimsically and uh, without, without uh, love, without wisdom, without holiness. So that is God. And if I might add something to this, I want to add something that with regard to this matter of holiness. Just a couple of sidebars on this. That this is not simply some abstract thought about God as being holy. You know, the holiness of God calls upon us to be filled with a sense of his majesty. We ought to be overwhelmed by that fact. Um, 
this is the context in which then we are, as Christians, we are moved to repent of sin. Oh, the thing that we don't want to do is what? Displease God. And when we do, we want to get it right with God. This is what it means to be filled with His majesty. And worship rises up out of us toward Him. And a sense of His grandeur. I want to tell you, folks, that we're going to hit on this a little later on. We are really working upstream on this in our culture. That, and we've got to be so vigilant in reflect, in self-reflection and to be careful that we're not swept downstream with our culture, which has no time or thought for God, except in profane ways. All right, one other thing about holiness, then we, we need to get back to the main road. The holiness of God then calls us to have a holy hatred of sin. God hates it. Proverbs in chapter 6, verses uh, 16 through 19. He says, be ye holy, for I am holy. And I ask you a very personal question. Are you at war with God in any way? Do, do you have your boxing gloves on? Are you, are you, maybe you're a little ticked about some of your circumstances or maybe why something's happened to you, why there's a disappointment, something you've lost something or someone. I would say the best thing that you could do would just say, God, help me. Help me, Lord. Why would I want to be at war with you? You are my, I should be hating sin as you hate sin. Move me in that direction. All right, let's go back now and proceed with uh, the next uh, plank, if you will, in this matter of uh, Christian theism, a Christian worldview. And it would be that God created the cosmos ex nihilo. You write that down, you know some Latin. It means out of nothing. To operate with a uniformity of cause and effect in an open system. Oh, this is huge. Let me just place here naturalism. This is what naturalism says. This is the stuff that's it's taking over the oxygen of our culture. Naturalism. That the cosmos exists as a uniformity of cause and effect in a closed system. So, according to naturalism, the cosmos, the world in which we live, it's not open to any reordering from the outside, either by a transcendent being. There is no place for God to move into this um, material world. And nor even a self or an autonomous man. And we say, let's get and put it in contrast to this. Um, Well, no, I didn't give you enough. I'll put that off. We say, and I want to put this up in contrast to naturalism, God created everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
One theologian puts it this way. When the fact of God's creation of the universe is excluded from our nation's educational system, the most fundamental fact in the entire universe is concealed from children in schools. That's what's happening in our wider culture when this truth is absent. And there are enormous consequences when this truth is denied or ignored, namely that God is created the cosmos ex nihilo, out of nothing, to operate as an open system, that if you want the consequences of denying this truth, read Romans 1 again. And God turns us over to consequences, a banquet of consequences for denial of this. God spoke the cosmos into existence. And it was not out of himself. It was not of or some pre-existent chaos. There was nothing. And as a result, the universe, let me, let me read the passage here. You can turn there with me to Isaiah 45. This is one of the great chapters. I, some recall it that saying this, great chapters of the Bible. I think if they're all, if they're all God breathed, they're all great. But, uh, I, I'm saying this in comparison to say with maybe some uh, genealogical passages in numbers, but be that as it may, let me read to you Isaiah 45, 18 and 19. And let this set the, uh, set our thoughts on this. Uh, Proverbs, or excuse me, Isaiah uh, 45 and verses 18 and 19. Here we are. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. Proverbs, or excuse me, uh, Isaiah 18. I should read, uh, let me read 19. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste uh, place. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. So <clears throat> God has spoken the universe into existence. It's orderly. And God um, does not present us with confusion, but clarity. This is, I think, by the way, you find moral clarity if you are biblical senses, if you have your biblical senses about you. Moral clarity is such a satisfying thing. We don't live with a lack of clarity because God made us, made this, made the cosmos for moral clarity. And so thank God for the orderliness, the regularity of the universe. Uh, this brings up some matters with regard to cause and effect and orderliness. You know, the fact that human beings can impact the environment is a witness to the orderliness and regularity of the universe. When we pollute streams, kill fish, pollute the air, 
you know, Christians are really the original environmentalist. Uh, liberals have uh, come along and would have us to think that they are the king of the mountains on this matter of environmentalism. But Christians are the people who really cherish the values of being stewards, good stewards of the environment. And can we destroy the planet? What about global warming? I don't doubt that there may be some impact on the on the weather and even perhaps on the climate, two different things, by mankind. We can have some limited impact. But can we destroy the planet? I don't think so. But the fact that we can impact the uh, the environment and do really bad things to it and can clean it up and restore it even, that Sire says this about it, James Sire, if the universe were not orderly, our decisions would have no effect. (laughs) But it is orderly, so we make decisions and we can do bad things to the creation, harmful things to it. All right, let's advance. Thirdly, Human beings, <clears throat> human beings are created in the image of God and thus possess personality, self-transcendence, intelligence, morality, gregariousness, and creativity. Let's take up three of these and unpack them. And then I'll contrast this with what naturalism says. Uh, for example, we have intelligence because we're in the image of God. We have the capacity for reason and knowledge. Gregariousness. We have the capacity for social, for companionship and community. The male-female aspect of creation enters in here. We have, we have the capacity in morality, we have the capacity for Recognizing and understanding good and evil. We have creativity. A capacity for creativity. That's the ability to imagine new things. This is because we're in the image of God. So Christians of all people should appreciate the value of creativity. Not that we can create things out of nothing. But that we can do things with things. And a couple of uh, side notes here. But here, let me just mention naturalism for a moment. Uh, did I put that one in? Naturalism. Uh, yeah. Uh, naturalism. Don't, don't get ahead of me and don't get preoccupied with number four. Just naturalism there. And then I, I've got a couple of side notes. I want to, uh, they're important, but uh, we'll get to those. Naturalism, human beings are complex machines. This is where we are in our culture. We're, ge- we're chemicals. That's what we are. And personality is an interrelation of chemical and physical properties we do not yet fully understand. This is why we are, we're just almost, we're inundated with a whole, uh, uh, by the pharmaceutical companies. 
and others who have something to gain from this, that the answer to our problems can be found in some kind of chemical, some kind of medication. Not a war against medication by any means. But um, the point is, is that naturalism looks upon us as complex machine. And now I want to say something about these two, two side notes here, especially with regard to creativity. That's, I want to sit on that one for just a minute. I, uh, in the first place, at creativity, I was speaking with one of the men this morning. We were talking about, I had a project for him. He works with wood. And he's done it all his life. He's good. And uh, we were talking about this craft, this skill. He has tools, for example, that he, he's, he's getting on up in years and he needs to do something with his tools. And these are, he mentioned some of the names of these, and I didn't, you could, any of you who work with tools, you may, you'd recognize them, but I didn't. But he doesn't know what to do with them. Who would appreciate them? Who would know what to do with them? And woodworking, that skill, he, he said, he doesn't know anybody. Uh, that doesn't mean there aren't any, but, uh, those craftsmen, people who have these skills with their hands, and take things and do extraordinary things with them. And could we be losing that in our, where, where the, uh, women can be in on this too, but I'm thinking of young men who are, have skills uh, in craftsmanship, say in, say in woodmaking, woodworking. What are they doing? They're playing war games. They're on their, on the internet. They're whatever uh, out there off into this cyber world. I think that is really cutting into a lot of important things that we've benefited from in the past. And what we're facing now with a, as a generation is coming along, it's going to be bereft of these things. What's it going to be like? All right, but the other thing I wanted to mention here with regard to creativity I was reading an interesting article uh, recently, just this past week, and uh, this article is uh, in Christianity Today, and uh, this is a magazine that's, okay, it is what it is, I'm not going to get into all that, but uh, the article title is, Why We Lost the Marriage Plot, and How Christians in the Arts Can Bring It Back. And the point is this in the article, that we look at what has happened in our culture and see that the, what we would say a model marriage, a really good marriage. Where do you go to see something like that? Yeah, on television? Really good marriages? Well, the, uh, the author, or is it, uh, yeah, David uh, Taylor? He's saying that, you know, one of the, the reason is, is that many people who write scripts, script writers for television and movies, so many of them have no idea what a good marriage is. Like 60% in it in divorce, and those, the other 40%. So they, and, and that the single, the unmarried person is much more interesting for 
entertainment, sitcoms, that sort of thing. And also, the author mentions the fact of how, why quickly, so quickly, uh, gay marriage and approval of, not just acceptance, no, approval of homosexuality, how quickly this changed. And there is even now, by the way, uh, so there's this morning's paper yesterday, the, uh, there is a bill being introduced to Congress, the LGBT rights bill, lesbian, gays, bisexual, transgender. It's being introduced into Congress, rights. And they're saying it's going to take a few years, but it's coming. Just get ready for it. Well, that those in these categories will be deserving rights, you know, non-discrimination and who, you know, where that can take us further. But he says, this author of the article says, what's happened is that the arts have been taken over by this secular mindset, the naturalist mindset, doesn't use those terms. And it goes to the imagination. He says, you know, what do you begin to imagine? This is what turned around, what was the, uh, I didn't, um, the, the sitcom. I don't know that I ever saw except for a, a little bit of it. It's where a homosexual is, homosexual is very favorable, and it takes you through the, the, the struggles, and you, you enter into the life of. Now, I'm, I'm not saying we demonize homosexual homosexuality, not at all. But the point that's made here is that when you get into the imagination and you can get people to imagining that a sinful lifestyle or or what would have been considered a sinful life, when you begin to imagine that, hey, look, they have feelings. Sure, we knew that, but they laugh, they cry, they get disappointed, they they deal with death, they have relationships. They have all deal, deal with the stuff of life. And so you begin to get yourself in their shoes and imagining that as a possibility. He's saying that this is what has turned things. Just think movies, TV programs. And when you get yourself in the shoes of, that was an interesting point you were making about who do you identify with in that story with Ahab and Naboth. Do you put yourself in Ahab's sandals or Naboth sandals in evaluating that. We all do this. We put ourselves, any movie or TV program you watch, you are identifying with somebody there. If it is someone that the script writers have made in, out in such a way that you feel sympathy for, compassion for, empathy, you like, you identify with their struggle. And it, by the way, it doesn't have to be uh, homosexuality or a gay person. It can be just bad people. <laughs> and he's saying that the imagination is powerful for reworking your, what you value. And he explains this, shows that this is one of the reasons for this rapid, rapid flip over. And what you see in every state after state, same-sex marriage, yes, same-sex marriage, yes. And look at the way the judges are reasoning on it. It's frightening. It's simply anti-Christian hostility reasoning when you examine it. 
So I just thought that was an interesting uh, side point. And he, the author mentions this, uh, this TV sitcom, Modern Family. Now, you're not going to be looked as a pariah if you've seen it, so don't think, oh, I don't know what that is. <laughs> uh, but let me, what he says about Modern Family. Shows like Modern Family, which prominently features a gay couple, achieve what uh, an author here calls category work. The show takes a categorical stereotype, stereotype like the flamboyantly fickle gay man and complicates it by showing other possibilities, in this case, the trustworthy gay man. Modern Family performs an additional function by presenting the empathetic gay characters it helps the viewer exchange an anxious feeling about gay people with a likable feeling, and, as the case may be, it enables the viewer to imagine him or herself in friendship with a gay person. You want to know why high school kids think differently about these things than they did 15, 20 years ago? That's it. What are they watching? What are the movies they go to? So I just... And so back to this point with regard to creativity. And the author says, you know, Christians really have, unfortunately, have abandoned the arts. And Christians, if we can get them showing up and uh, having some influence here and there. I know we're not here going into all the world to save the world. But listen, folks, uh, Christians need to be showing up with the gifts that God's given us. Not everybody's called to be a pastor or a missionary in the strict sense of the term. But whatever your field, whatever your gift, where our young people grow up and what they do, we have young people who are interested in drama um, <clears throat> and economics and playwriting. We, we've got a grandson who's interested in media. That's his uh, getting his, his senior at, at the University of Georgia. And he, he's a Christian, and he wants to do things the right way. Pray, I pray for him because he's got <clears throat> some real challenges in front of him. All right. Um, okay, I got a couple of roads off the main road. But let's, let's get back to this. So here's what we say about human beings created in the image of God. Personality, that human beings are capable of acting. We're capable of acting on our own. We don't merely react to our environment, but we can act according to our own character. We are personal because God's personal. We reflect the transcendence of God. We're made in his image. We can know something about the cosmos and act significantly to change the course of human and cosmic events. Human beings have been created male and female. You think, wow, that's really a heavy thought. <laughs> but do you know something? That if our personality is grounded in the personality of God, and it is, where do we find our true home? Sire puts it this way, we find our true home in God and in being in close relationship with him. This is what's behind what theologians have said, like our hearts, Augustine said, our hearts are restless till they find rest in thee. Others have spoken about this God-shaped vacuum in every human being. 
and that we as Christians say you don't need alcohol, you don't need drugs to make you happy. Our homes should be safe harbors. There ought to be contentment and peace and joy and stability in our <clears throat> circles and our lives as Christians. I'm going to quote something from Sire. I want to get back to this male and female thing, but uh, Sire says, and if you're uh, taking notes, for instance, this is on page uh, 29. This is the way he puts it. He says, how does God fulfill our ultimate longing? He does so in many ways by being the perfect fit for our very nature, by satisfying our longing for interpersonal relationships. By being in his omniscience, the end of our search for knowledge. By being in his infinite being, the refuge from all fear. By being in his holiness, the righteous ground for our quest for justice, of our quest for justice. By being in his infinite love, the cause of our hope for salvation. By being in his infinite creativity, both the source of our creative imagination and the ultimate beauty we seek to reflect as we, uh, as we ourselves create. Well, you see, everything that we are and want to be and we were designed to be is bound up in God. This is Christian theism. Now, all right, we're, okay, you're comfortable in this. You say, yes, we're on the reservation here. We're, we're agreeing. All right. But think of the alternative to these things. And I'm not taking us down that road, but maybe we can talk about it as we get into next week when we get into ethics and some other issues. What if you don't, if you don't have theism as your worldview, where do you go? What do you, what do you do? What kind of culture do you create? I'll tell you one kind of culture you create. You'll do what they have done in Minnesota. Did you see that? Where we have this gender identity thing. And the school, whoever's in charge, the 20 of them in charge of the school system in Minnesota. This was just the other day. That um, this gender identity, if you feel like you, know, you may have male plumbing, but if you feel like you are female, you can, well, you've, you've got a few little modest hoops to go through. You've got to get a sign-on from your parents. You get some, um, you get some uh, maybe a psychologist, psychiatrist, or get some professionals to sign on and say, yeah, um, yeah, he's, he's got some, uh, he's male. He's got male plumbing, but he feels like he's female. He can play in girl sports. That's what's happened in Minnesota. 18 out of 20 voted yes for this. There was one abstention and one voted no. That's in Minnesota. Now, it's already true in California. So, <laughs> so here you are. Think of This is moral idiocy. Well, you think it. If I feel like a guy, if I feel like a girl. So just imagine there is this uh, this. This fellow who thinks he's convinced a series of people through this that he feels more like a girl. And if he wants to play on the girls' basketball team, well, he's going to bring male physiology 
stronger, maybe taller, certainly, you know, more strength up in the shoulders, upper body. I, where does this go? I, it, it's going to be an interesting thing to see. I don't know. I won't be around that long probably to see all the consequences. To tell me when you get to heaven. All right, we'll be waiting on you. But uh, where is this idiocy going? So I'm not. I'm not joking. This is. I, can, I have to. I look at the article and said, "Is this a spoof?" But it's not. Four. We've got to conclude here. All right. Whoops. That was it. Uh, number four. Let's go back. Number four. Human beings can can know both the world around them and God himself because God has built into them the capacity to do so and because he takes an active role in communication, communicating with them. I Actually, I'm, I'm over time here, so I'm going to stop on this. I'm not going to, we'll, we'll pick back up on this one. But uh, here's where we need to talk about revelation, general revelation, special revelation, and Jesus Christ as the ultimate special revelation. But human beings can know. Knowledge is possible because there's something to be known and someone to know. And God has taken the initiative in this transfer of knowledge. So it's not, we're not playing hide and seek. God seeks, he says, here it is, I'm telling you. And I want us to uh, plumb that a little bit. Do you want to talk about any of this? It's uh, got a few minutes if you'd like to uh, discuss anything. This. Oh, I call it universities. Listen, folks, this is what this is where the Christian worldview is really up against it. That. Uh, and, and, a left liberal worldview, the naturalist. Now, there you may find exceptions. You have to put them. There are exceptions, and we're not saying these people are all bad people. Some may be very good, well-intentioned, and may not even consistently hold all the views within these alien systems, like naturalism, secularism, and so forth, hedonism. However, <clears throat> you know who the gatekeepers are in the media, academics, and entertainment. It's liberalism. It's this naturalism. And that the erasure of God out of the picture. And uh, I just wonder, this the wearing down effect of this and what it's happening, what's happening with younger people. And uh, absolutely. And young parents sending their kids off to college. Now, this is not an argument for not going to college. But I will tell you this. When you get ready to go to college, you had better, as a parent, as an adult, get your children, your grandchildren, whoever, get them ready. They're going to be up against it. And we had some company recently, and a young lady was telling us uh, she was going to go to such and such a college. It's a so-called uh, it's a Baptist school. I know a little, we know a little bit about it. And uh, matter of fact, I know some things about it, and I'm hoping she knows where she's going. This isn't to say she couldn't go there, but if you go there, you had better be aware of what you are up against. And um, there, there's the hostility level. And I've got grandkids are in college, too. So I get some firsthand stuff 
as to what it's like in that domain. And we've got our work cut out for us. We had better be doing our job to get our young people ready. Anything else? Observations? Thoughts? Yeah. That's exactly right. Ken Ham in Answers in Genesis, he's been on this for decades. Genesis 1-1 crumbles, everything crumbles. That's why he fights so tenaciously with uh, that Answers in Genesis um, uh, ministry. And uh, we've got to get our young people steeped, steeped in biblical creationism and be ready. Know about evolution, yes, be able to discuss it, dismantle it, compare it with a Christian worldview. See how the worldview is so important? Um, uh, or the somebody will be, some, some biology prof will be having them for lunch in their mind and... Uh, We've got work to do, work to do. You ready to go? All right. We need to pray. Lord, we do need foresight. In, Lord, wisdom, informed foresight in our church. Perhaps, Lord, there are things we need to be doing with our young people that we're not. Lord, we thank you for those dedicated to teaching our young people. I thank you, Lord, for those who take care with the young people. Lord, I think of those children last Sunday night and the faithful people over in Oana who are teaching them. Oh, God, for that responsibility that's on our shoulders to teach the next generation, so enable us here at Baraka to do so and make us now gospel people in a fresh way this season, this week even, in Christ's name. Amen.